Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in film, literature, and popular culture. Well, greetings, everyone. My name is Bruce Markison, and as always, I'm joined by our producer, co-host, Tracy Asteria. Tracy, welcome to the show. How are things going with your Christmas preparations? Hey, Bruce. Everything is coming along really well. I have the tree up. I have all of my sci-fi little warships all over my tree, um, along with dragonflies. And there's lights everywhere. So I'm happy. And my next door neighbors have finished decorating and it looks beautiful over there too. Their decorations actually sing. (laughs) Nice. Well, we're going to be talking about frightening things before Christmas, which is especially appropriate for me. Because on Sunday, my daughter and I went to get our Christmas tree, which is always an annual process and procedure. We went to a place in Cooperstown in the village. It's like three and a half miles from our house. Uh, The guy who tied the tree to the top of our car is a very nice man, but he didn't really know what he was doing. Uh, Three times we had to stop along Route 28 because the tree was literally starting to slide off the roof of the car, and we were afraid of causing an accident. So in a three-mile stretch, we stopped at at least three, maybe four times. It probably took uh, 30 minutes to get home. Normally, it's about six minutes. So it was an adventure. And the other other frightening thing I'm always concerned about is the tree falling over. It has not fallen over at this point. So that's a good thing. But uh, that's a good thing. Do you have any eye on that? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's a perfect lead-in to our guest this week. Um, he might not take that as a perfect lead-in, but he's a very interesting guy. His name is Jeff Belanger. Jeff is one of the most prolific researchers of folklore and legends that we have today. He's an award-winning and Emmy-nominated host of the New England Legends series, uh, broadcast both on Amazon Prime and PBS. He's also the author of 16 books, including his latest, and that's our main topic of conversation in this week's show. The book is called The Fright Before Christmas, Surviving Krampus and Other Yuletide Monsters. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, and I hope uh, all of you and your listeners somehow survive the holiday season. (laughs) The odds are not with us. Um, I should feel like I should warn you right up front, but... But I hope we get through it. I Fingers hope so crossed. as well. First <laughs> off, I love the title of the book, The Fright Before Christmas. Now, did you come up with yeah. that or was it the publisher or did you work together on that one? I did, actually. Uh, I didn't like their first title. They wanted to get Krampus in the title because Krampus has the movie deals. He's all the sex appeal. I get it. I get it. People know Krampus. But I think the story is so, so much bigger than Krampus that I said, we can't call it Krampus. That's not fair. That's not really what the, the book is. That's a just a piece of it. And so um, one of my favorite all-time movies is The Nightmare Before Christmas. And I, um, of course, I, being a paranormal guy, being a ghost guy who has previously been known mostly for all things Halloween, um, there's a long debate. Is, is that movie a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie? And if you love it, you say, I don't care. I watch it from October all the way through January, you know, and then I'll watch it again next year. And I was kind of like, that's what I'm talking about here. Um, I feel like this, the Halloween season, Halloween gets so much 
attention now. It's just so much bigger than when I was a kid. And then when I started to research Christmas, I went, oh my, Uh, Halloween is only the second most frightening holiday. And it's a distant second. I mean, it's a warm up act at best. The kind of act you come in like on the last song, you know, like (laughs) you're out in the parking lot, you know, having fun before the, the before the main act. And and so really, that's where all this was born. So I was just like, I wanted to sort of play with it. And and we knew the idea was going to be this hardcover, beautiful, like, you know, gift book. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, Fright Before Christmas was a play, of course, on the most famous poem. That's right. Yeah. When did you come up with the idea for this book? When did you start writing it, working on it? So 10 years ago, I, I, I give a lot of talks, especially around October, still do. That hasn't changed at all. And a local museum near me in Massachusetts, uh, one December said, hey, would you ever consider like doing a talk on Krampus? Krampus is getting sort of hot now. Mm. And I went, yeah, you know what? I, I mean, that sounds interesting. I've been meaning to look into him anyway. So I did. And I did a little talk. And some people came up after and said, hey, well, you, you didn't mention Belschnickel and you didn't mention this. And I went, you're right. And I wrote it down. And then the following year, I did more of these talks. And um, and I st- and I learned there's a lot to this. And and really though the whole impetus started around that same time it was early in december and i was trying to put up my christmas lights and my christmas wreath in my front door and i was cold it was really cold here that day and my fingers were getting numb and the the crafting wire that held up my wreath on the front door broke because it's old and rusty and my plastic fake wreath fell to the ground and i was just like I was just over it. And I'm like, why am I doing this? You know, why the wreath? Why the evergreens? Why the lights? Half of them don't work. Why December 25th? Why just why Krampus? Why Santa Claus? Why the presents? Why the tree inside? Why do we go through so much trouble? Why do I go into Hawk for this one day, you know, spend months paying it off? And and to be fair, I'm a dad. You know, I had I had a young child at that time and, and I'm a husband and, and all that other stuff. But I said, you know, I there's answers to those questions because I know that from all the work I do, my whole lot, my whole career has been about the backstory. And so I sort of broke the holiday apart into all its original pieces and put it back together again, piece by piece. And I went, oh, my, this is dark and scary and sinister and creepy. But underneath all that darkness, all that lethal darkness, I mean, Halloween's scary. The veil's thin. Ghosts come out. Ghosts scare, scare some people. I get that. But Christmas could kill you. There's monsters that are out there to kill, to kill, to maim, to 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 take us back and, and eat us. And underneath all that darkness, there is this ray of hope that really makes it the most beautiful and all-inclusive holiday. And I say that as a, a Reformed Catholic, a kid who was raised Catholic, right, who used to wonder as a kid why Santa didn't visit my Jewish friends, you know, um, I... I say that this holiday at when it was first conceived and came around was the most inclusive of all of them because mm-hmm. it was all about the winter solstice and whether you believe or don't believe buddhist hindu mm. muslim christian jewish atheist whatever if you live in a northern climate where winters are tough affects everybody and that's what this was always about is how do we survive this devastating this dangerous dangerous uh, time of year and from that time of year, the stories were born of monsters, monsters coming to get us that we need to look out for and look out for each other. Oh, interesting. No, that's that's really interesting because uh, a lot of us try to think of Christmas as a joyous time, and it can be. It can be a time for family, kindness toward others. Mm-hmm. 
but you talk a lot, especially in the beginning of the book, about the association with the winter solstice, the darkness, the fact that centuries ago, people really were frightened about, am I going to get through the winter? Do we have enough food? Do we have enough uh, source of heat to keep us going? I mean, that was a legitimate concern for a long time for anybody, especially living in a colder climate. Absolutely. And, and, and it is still a time for family. It's literally a time that we should stay inside where it's safe uh, because outside is dangerous. And whether a monster gets you or the elements, like if you die from exposure, what's the difference? You know what I mean? Like you're still dead. And so we tell these stories, we hibernate. If you're, if you're a farming culture, you're not as busy in the winter. You know, you don't have fields to tend to every single day. It's they're, they're, they're frozen over until the morning. Uh, and so, um, so, I mean, you've got idle time, you've got, uh, so much going on, so much is different than the other three seasons, um, that we, we have to sort of hunker down stay inside and, and appreciate each other. We all remember COVID <laughs> <laughs> there are families and marriages that didn't survive that because it was too much time together. I think winter's just about right. Cause come spring, we're like, yeah, we got to get out of here. It's time to get outside and <laughs> you know, exactly. get some space again. And then come winter, we'll appreciate each other again. Oh my goodness. So uh, I just, I have to ask before we start getting right into talking about your book and everything, uh, where did, how did you develop such an interest in folklore and in mystery and become such an adventure that you are as a human being? I, I probably, cause I grew up around it. Uh, I was, I was born in Massachusetts. I grew up in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. And the town next to us was, is Monroe, Connecticut, where Ed and Lorraine Warren live. Mm -hmm. And so I knew Ed and Lorraine Warren since I was about 13. Oh, wow. Uh, this is pre-internet, pre, you know, like all that stuff. They were just local ghost hunters, local celebrities. Mm -hmm. and, and I'd go see their talks in, in October and stuff. And, and um, you know, they'd speak at libraries and things. And I thought it was, it was just fascinating. And I had friends who lived in houses they said were haunted, these old homes. And so I guess you combine... Ed and Lorraine Warren's influence with, you know, being around this, these old historic haunted homes. Mm -hmm. And I was just intrigued. I, I wanted to know more. And, and I'm, I'm sure my Catholic faith actually had something to do with that too, is I was like, I, I want to see this stuff that they talk about in the, from the pulpit and, and in the Bible, like, don't, I don't want to take your word for it. Like, show me the ghost. you know what I mean? And, and mm -hmm. so, um, so the, the older I got, the more I moved away from the church and the more I moved into almost atheism, not quite. And, and I think because I didn't get, I didn't quite get there because I believed in ghosts, uh, whatever they were. Right. And, um, as I got older, I started writing for newspapers and magazines and, uh, around October, you go looking for feature stories and that turned into a career I never could have planned. It was, but I love history. I love talking to people, hearing their firsthand accounts. And then when someone says I was in this room and I saw a ghost, well, I want to go in the room too. You know, I, that's, I can't help it. I want to go there and I want to see what you saw if I can. And most of the time I could not, that doesn't mean I thought they were lying to me, but it meant that, you know, I wasn't there. And eventually I got to the point where I said, uh, I don't know where the ghosts are, but I absolutely know where they were. Hmm. Um, because I have been all over the world in all kinds of haunted places, you know, looking for this stuff. And I have had experiences of my own now, not many, 25 mm -hmm. years of doing this, but I've, I've had a few enough that I, I absolutely believe. And I think there's something to it and there's some inherent mm -hmm. magic at work 
that sort of connects all of us. And, um, and so once you go down the rabbit hole, like there's no point in going halfway, you just go all the way. So I, I, you know, I've moved from ghosts to other stories and monsters and cryptids, aliens, bring it on, you know, uh, whatever weird thing is out there that's on the fringe. I think there's a lot we can glean about ourselves when we explore that. Right. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. What a life. I can't believe you, Ed and Lorraine Warren. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> well, it's funny. You know, so when I was a kid, you know, there was no internet. So they, I remember we would talk about various houses on main street in Newtown being haunted and, and they, some of them do have that reputation. And there was right. one, it was a place called superstar sports. Don't look it up. It's long gone, but it was a sporting goods store. Like they would sell you baseball bats and tennis rackets and baseball gloves and all that stuff. And it was an old house converted into a store and everybody sort of talked about it being haunted. And some kids would say, no, I don't believe in any of that. That's not true. And then someone would say, no, Ed and Lorraine Warren were there. And that's how you drop the mic. You know, that was it. it wow. Was, they checked it out. It's haunted. And you went, oh, okay. And that, that was the end of the story. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Jeff, very interesting. You bring up the Warrens who are always kind of a source of controversy. They, of course, influence the Conjuring films. They have their supporters. They have their naysayers. Where do you fall on the Warrens? Oh, man. Well, they had good hearts. Um, you know, always good hearts. I think factually they were wrong a lot. Um, I think they, um, I, I know that. I, I've interviewed them about projects and Ed would start dropping dates and you'd say, no, that's that's not even close to right, Ed. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just, um, but I, I think their hearts were in the right place. They also... Uh, I know, I know John Zaffis will yell at me for this saying this, but I, I mean, I don't care. Like they, they really had a very Roman Catholic approach to everything they did. And yes, of course they claim to work with people of all faiths, but you're flow, you're throwing holy water and, and talking about demons at every turn. Um, demon means you're speaking from a belief system, not from a place of, you know, any object, you know, something bumps in the night and you're scared. I get it. But to call it a demon is quite a leap. Um, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, you could find as many things wrong with them as right with them, but they were doing this at a time when very few others were, and they were certainly pioneers and, and nothing could take that away from them. Um, but yeah, otherwise, yeah. And it's not the way I do things, but I don't perform exorcisms either. Yeah. <laughs> well, not good ones. Mine never work. <laughs> <laughs> they don't, demons don't listen to me. You know, you talk about ghosts, and right at the start of the book, page two of the introduction, you refer to the lyric from the very popular Christmas song that Andy Williams did. I think it may have been back in the 1960s. And the lyric, yep. there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. And your response to that is very much the same as I think mine would have been as a child, scary ghost stories. I don't remember that being part of Christmas tradition, but it very much is. It was in the, in Victorian times, it was huge, uh, mid 1800s, uh, all the way up into the 19, early 1900s. And then that tradition went away. And I can specifically tell you why, if you want to get into the nuts and bolts of it, but sure. When I grew up, um, yeah, no, there were no scary ghost stories. Although there was one that was uh, that we do all recall, we're just overlooking it at the moment. Uh, a very important one, critical one, one of the best ever written by a master, um, Christmas Carol, right, by Charles Dickens. Mm -hmm. That is a story that has been performed by uh, cartoons, by Muppets, by stage, you know, <laughs> productions, by 
uh, various movie studios and and everything in between. It's a story I still consume every single year. And when done well, it is a scary ghost story. It's supposed to be. But that's just one. There, It used to be a, a tradition that this was the time to talk about frightening stuff. Uh, think about Edgar Allan Poe, the raven, right? I remember that bleak December. I mean, of course, December is the time. There is so little daylight. The trees are skeletal. It's cold. I mean, the, the long, long night is coming of midwinter. It is a frightening time of year. It's inherently frightening. And Poe knew it. And uh, we've just sort of glossed it over with a bunch of Christmas lights for a reason that we may not fully understand, but an ancient, ancient reason in that we want to light up the night. I mean, it's a long, dark night. We literally have to illuminate it. We have to be beacons uh, so we can find our own way home. And so wayward travelers can find their way to our homes if they're, if they're lost and need help. So, yeah, those traditions. And, and when when Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol, he was one of many, many, many people that were writing scary ghost stories around Christmas time. His just went into the stratosphere. Uh, his was more popular, was was better. It, it it got huge, huge beyond huge, and it and it survived the the ages compared to some of the other ones. But you can find old collections online of some of those great old um, you know Victorian Christmas ghost stories. But yeah, but so so they were a tradition. And but even in 1961, I think when Andy Williams had that song, that that tradition was mostly gone by then too. He must have just mm. rem been remembering his childhood when they were. Maybe the last uh, gasps were still around, but I don't know. I'd like to see them coming back. I, and I think they are. I think a lot of this dark stuff is coming back really off the back of Krampus. If we're being honest, I mean, he's the pop culture figure now and he forces us to ask like, well, what else is out there? And I think yeah. they're all coming back because we need them because we're summoning them once more. We are bringing them back from the shadows of, of Christmas where they just, they weren't gone. They were just dormant. They were waiting for us to call on them again. And I think we're calling on them again right now. Jeff, when do you think winter ceased be ceased becoming this time of death and became a less urgent, although still concerning time of darkness and cold? Well, in modern times, I mean, we've got plow services and, and heat. And, and when it's too snowy out, we call DoorDash. We've gotten soft, Bruce. <laughs> we've gotten pretty soft. You know what I mean? But um, and, and those are those are our much more modern times. But really put your mind back only only 100 years, just 100 years. And it was a it was a different picture. You could be snowed in for days, right? You you could run out of fuel, put your mind back 200 years. And really, uh, we're, we're talking about all the all the dangers that that all these legends talk about. It's not that far long ago, um, historically speaking, but we, the monsters went into the, the corners. They got scared away around the late 1920s. That's when they all had to go. Krampus had to go and all the monsters had to go because of the great depression and the great depression was brutal. And the only way out of a depression, economic depression or recession for that matter is to spend money, which is weird. You know, mm. I know because if you don't have money, how do you spend it? And if you do have a little bit of money, your every instinct is I should save this because times are really bad out there. But once you spend, things get better. And it was in the that era that the Coca-Cola company came up with this ad campaign with Santa Claus and said Santa Claus could help us sell Coke. And they came up with this jolly figure, this big red suit and the white trimmed hat and the fur and all that other stuff. And it worked. And mm -hmm. people bought more Coca-Cola that year. And the following year, anybody who sells anything was thinking, wait a minute, 
Coca-Cola doesn't own Santa Claus. Uh, Santa Claus could help sell my donuts, pizza, cars, whatever it is you sell. You could have the world's biggest celebrity as your spokesperson. And suddenly Christmas became about consumerism and there was no room for anything scary. We need to spend, buy, be happy, be jolly, get the latest, greatest toys, keep spending, spending, spending. Uh, it was around that time that Thanksgiving was moved to the fourth Thursday of uh, November because it was always the last Thursday of November, which it still is sometimes mathematically, but uh, it was moved to the fourth Thursday because retailers needed more time for holiday shopping for Christmas. And what's good for the economy mm. is good for America. So it was moved. Friday became Black Friday and the Christmas holiday became squarely about consumerism and buying, buying, buying. And we don't need Krampus in there scaring anybody off. We don't need Belschnickel or all these other monsters. Let's focus on the spending. And that's where it sat for a long, long time. And I feel like some of us are getting a little tired of that. And that's part of the reason that, you know, these things are coming back because we're just like, wait a minute, they were always here. They were here long ago. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing stopping us from bringing these stories back again. And here we are, you know, uh, when the Krampus movie came out in 2015, he he exploded and he's just been getting bigger since. Like, I mean, there's Krampus candles and stuff in the, you know, in, in like gift shops and um, there's this new book, Fright Before Christmas. I've heard, I've heard it's fantastic. I'm not sure, but, uh, but you know what I mean? Like he's getting bigger, he's coming around again. And on the back yeah. of that, uh, people see what else is out there. Tracy, you wouldn't know anything about cold darkness living in Nova Scotia. This is very foreign to you. Oh yes, I know Bruce, isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you've got, you've got so many great Canadian traditions too, right? That, uh, whether it's mummering with over in Newfoundland or, or, mm -hmm. um, every, every culture, every country has put its thumbprint on this holiday. And yeah, I mean, you must know it, it is a, still a dangerous season. It's a season you have to survive up there. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like the darkness of the weather. And it's funny, I was just reading an article that it's actually mummering season right now over in Newfoundland. And they're just gearing up. I think it's December the 9th, I think is when they have their big parade. And then they start to go visit all dressed up and it's it's a fun time from what I hear. I've never participated. <laughs> so for those who don't know, mummering is kind of like caroling, except um, a lot more alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole idea is, is you put on a mask, but it's an ugly mask. Like it's just like a, a, a sack over your face. You might cross dress. You might dress in women's clothes if you're a man or man's clothes if you're a woman, whatever. You're supposed to not be recognizable. And then you you bring musical instruments. There could be a guitar or like an accordion, but there could also be uh, someone described to me an ugly stick, which is just <laughs> a, a big stick with a bunch of like bottle caps nailed into it. So you bounce it on the ground and it jingles and, and makes a sound and you go door to door and you 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 sing songs and you try to get inside and people try to guess who you are and you'll describe you'll disguise your voice or whatever. And they'll say, oh, are you Tracy? No, I'm not Tracy. And then they give you alcohol and treats. <laughs> And anything that leads to free alcohol and treats, in my experience, is, you know, tends to catch on. So you spend a few minutes in that house, then you go down the street to the next house and on and on and on. And by the end of the night, you're you're loaded, you know, and, and it's uh, <laughs> it's just this uh, raucous good time. It's very much an adult thing. You don't bring the kids to this. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's where it was. And, and so mummering is just a derivative of wassailing. Which wassailing was not, I mean, people think of wassailing and caroling as interchangeable. They're not. 
caroling is sort of our modern washed down version of it. You know, caroling is you stand outside someone's house and sing and go to the next house. Maybe you get some figgy pudding, whatever that is. But <laughs> the, the wassailers, it was literally a spiritual thing. If you're a farmer, you would hire wassailers to come and sing to your fruit trees and sing to your animals that they would be blessed for this for the winter and that there would be a good harvest next year and you would give them uh like a boozy punch not too much alcohol you just want to warm them you don't want them drunk and so you'd give them this kind of like boozy punch and they would drink it out of their wassailing bowl and they would you'd, you'd pay them either in money or or maybe like food or, or treats or whatever or or mm -hmm. alcohol and they would sing to your trees and then they would move on to the next farm and so that it's all very pagan, you know, and then, it, and then later on we, we turned it into caroling. Um, but it also part of a tradition of like a beggar's night, you know, you have to realize in the, in the industrial revolution, late 1700s or so, so many factories were water powered. And when the water freezes, everybody, and there's no daylight anyway to work, everybody's furloughed. So it's Christmas and everybody's out of work. And so they mm -hmm. go to the boss's house, wassailing, caroling, mummering, and looking for handouts and the boss if they're smart at all gives you good stuff not just scraps but like gives you good stuff and you literally forgive him for the layoff and you come back in the spring and you work again um it becomes a steam valve for the entire year which is what it was born i mean saturnalia you know centuries bc was all about a social steam valve where we're going to party we're going to flip society on its ears and and sort of you know party down before we hunker down for this this long winter that we all have to get through. It's almost as if you have my outline in front of you because I was going to ask you about Saturnalia next. This was this yeah. is a, a custom that I I had never heard of until we had uh David Skull, great historian, horror expert. He was on uh, just before Halloween and he talked mm -hmm. about Saturnalia and this was something that was a real big thing in ancient Rome, right? Yeah. So ancient Rome, it started out in the, the farming villages. Um, Saturn is the the god of the, satis means to sow. So Saturn's the god of the, the harvest and time and so on. And so this festival, December 17th to the 23rd, was a six-day party. Your, your harvest is taken in, the wine has been made, the ale has been made, animals have been slaughtered. They'll, they'll keep in the colder weather so you can have fresh meat. You feast, you give each other gifts, you dress in fine clothes. There's each a uh, house might have a Lord of Misrule where they get to almost be like the court jester. And then the, the masters are serve the servants. The servants get to be the masters and you get away with saying and doing stuff that you would never get away with the rest of the year. There's, there's big festivals and parties and gifts and orgies and all kinds of things that Rome does. And that party just raged because I mean, it sounds like a good time and, and it caught on and then it moved into the city and it, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger over time. So that's that's really the base root of all of this. And Rome also gave us December 25th is Christmas. That's where it all started. It was the Roman Emperor Constantine, who was the, the first Christian emperor, the one who was trying to unify Rome under one God, who said, look, uh, you know, Jesus was born a commoner. If, if it was important that we knew Jesus's birthday, it would have been written out for us in the Bible, but it's not. Um, you only get one clue in the Bible as to when Jesus was born, and it's in Luke chapter 2, it says shepherds were laying out in the field, watching over their flock by night when the angel of the Lord appeared. That's our only clue. And in Bethlehem, uh, shepherds stay out with their flock all night long in spring, summer, and fall, which means the only season we can rule out is winter. Doesn't matter. I mean, you know, I don't always celebrate my birthday on the day either, but 
But December 25th in the Julian calendar was the winter solstice. Hmm. That was the day that was Sol Invictus. It's the shortest day, but it's also the day that the sun returns. And if Jesus is going to be royalty, only royalty uh, keeps track of their birthdays back then. Jesus needed a birthday. He's a king. He's a king of kings. The winter solstice seemed the perfect fit. So now you've got six days of partying, December 17th to the 23rd. He knew he couldn't mess with that. It's too big. And now he can add on another day of partying on the 25th. And that's something people can get behind. And so that was the first one. And Christianity was at war with that date, December 25th, at war with it from about 336 AD until, you know, roughly the 1970s or so when they gave up and just took it over. Um, <laughs> my The priest, my Father Lawler, I was raised Catholic, right? Father mm-hmm. Lawler, we were in the church hall and five-year-old kids, right? And Santa Claus walked into the church hall. Santa Claus. Do you hear me? Santa Claus walked into the church hall. He had a bag of gifts. He had candy canes for every kid and a little wrapped present, which turned out to be a little plastic rosary for each kid. And we're freaking out because like Elvis, the Beatles, Santa Claus just walked in and there's Father Lawler in the corner, arms folded, looking so mad, furious. He was trying to shoot laser beams out of his eyes to make Santa's head explode if he could. I was like, he's going to throw hands any minute. And I'm like, Father Lawler, what's up? I mean, this is the greatest guy on earth. That is Santa Claus. He's bigger than Jesus. Oh, right. And so yeah. there it was. And, um, you know, he knew this is all pagan. This is all pagan. And I hate this. Christianity isn't defined by Christmas or the birth of Jesus. That is not what defines a Christian. The holiday that defines Christianity is Easter, right? right. Everybody's born, but, but nobody dies and is resurrected. That's the big one. Uh, in Christianity. That's what makes you a Christian. You believe in the Easter story. The Christmas story is not nearly as important theologically speaking. So they were at war with it forever uh, because it, it was it was literally banned by by the you know puritanical parliament in England for decades uh, back in the 1600s because they, you'd be fined for dressing fancy, uh, giving gifts, drinking libations. This was, they said, you know, we do more to dishonor Christianity in the 12 days of Christmas mm-hmm. than in all 12 months combined. And so they were at war with all these practices that had been in place for millennia as a steam valve, as a way for people to come together of all faiths, all cultures. And what I love about it is no matter what conflict, what war, what you believe, what you don't believe, so many of those traditions survived and they, mm. they made it all the way through. And you can look in your own house and you can see the lights and the tree and maybe the star and you can see garland around the tree and the wreath on your door and go hmm, none of this is in the Bible, right? All of this, but all of it has roots. And I'm not saying do away with it. You can you can put all the faith you want in any anything you want. However, all of it has a backstory. And when you learn it and when you understand it, it's sort of beautiful that we've, we've brought those things all the way through because they resonate on, on this very primal level um, that go back to ancestors we've all had from long, long ago and, you know, very difficult climates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things you really clarify in the book is that Santa Claus and St. Nicholas, not the same person. Two people. So uh, which I know is very confusing to us Americans because we grew up using the names interchangeably. Old St. Nick, Santa Claus. Um, I get it. It's very confusing. In Europe, St. Nicholas shows up on December 6th. That's St. Nicholas Day. That's the day that uh, Nicholas of Myra, which is modern day Turkey, Bishop of Myra, uh, he passed away. 
and that became his veneration day. He was the people's saint, patron saint of pawnbrokers, sailors, children, uh, and a host of other things. So many miracles attributed to him. More churches were named after him than all of the apostles for the longest time. So even the church had to relent and make him St. Nicholas. So he arrives on December 6th. Santa Claus really starts to come into his own in more like the second half of the 1800s. And he's really coming into his own in America. Uh, the Dutch brought him over to uh, you know New Amsterdam, which of course became New York. And then um, Sinterklaas became Santa Claus. And he got huge in the later parts of the 1800s, 19, and then 1900s, he just really came into his own. And in America, we never really celebrated St. Nicholas Day. So um, so we we just kept Santa Claus on December 25th. In Europe, Santa Claus has gotten so big, he's gotten so global, that those who are really traditional will still celebrate St. Nicholas Day on December 6th, where St. Nicholas comes and brings presents or treats to the kids. And then on December 25th, Santa Claus comes and brings uh, the new iPad and the new iPhone <laughs> and Xbox games that we've been waiting for so patiently. You've made a couple of references to it already, but certainly one of the major themes of the book is the monster known as Krampus, or as some yes. have said, maybe not accurately, the anti-St. Nicholas. Prior to the release of the 2015 film Krampus, I have to be honest with you, I'd never heard of this Christmas time monster. Why was it at this point that you think Hollywood decided, let's venture into the story of Krampus? How'd they even find out about it? <laughs> so Krampus is, is from Austria and Germany, and he never went away there. I mean, uh, he's, he's a monster, by the way. He's, he's covered in fur. He's got horns, a long red forked tongue. He's wrapped in chains so you can hear him coming. He carries a scratchy sack, and he shows up on uh, December 5th, Krampus knocked. And he, and he goes all around the world and he looks for all the naughty boys and girls, snatches them up, stuffs them in his sack, brings them back to his mountain lair and kills them. So St. Nicholas is free to bring presents to all the good girls and boys. That's the story. That's the, the you know, the, the folkloric Krampus. Uh, I, I, you know, he, there were other movies made before 2015, but they were really small time B movies that people don't really quite remember. Mm. And I think, you know, so Krampus runs were starting to catch on. There were Krampus groups forming, not now outside of Germany. So he was just, and, and really this is on the back of the internet, right? So the internet starts spreading these ideas and it looks like fun. Cosplayers are like, wait a minute, I do, you know, Star Trek cosplay in the summer. I could do Krampus in December, you know? And, and so people start to join these Krampus groups. They start to learn more about him and, you know, you have to remember Hollywood is a reflection of society, society. I think society sort of takes the lead and I think they just caught the the front wave of at the right time. And then that movie gets played again every year now. And I think he's sort of turning into like a, you know, a cult classic uh, as Christmas movies sometimes do, you know, Christmas stories of all kinds. Sometimes they become part yeah. of tradition. And once they're a tradition boy, that's that they're going to stick around a while. So, so Krampus got huge off that movie. Um, and he's sexy. He's a monster. He's got everything that you would want if you're making a Hollywood movie. And but then, of course, it begs the question, like, well, who else is out there? And then you learn there's a bunch. And and you right. He is not the anti Santa Claus. He's uh, not at all. He's he's a cohort. They're partners. They work together. This is good cop, bad cop. Uh, in fact, if you look <laughs> at some of the great old postcards, 
you see that St. Nicholas and Krampus will arrive at the house at the same time. And the little kids are so happy to see St. Nicholas and the naughty kids are hiding under the table, petrified because they know Krampus is there for them. And, and that, you know, when I was a kid, I was told, Hey, you're going to get less presents or you'll get coal and sticks in your stocking. Right. Imagine if it was okay. Two guys are walking in right now. One of them is obviously a, a, a good guy. The other one is obviously a monster. And, um, which one do you think's here for you? <laughs> and your brain starts running through all the, oh, I stole the cookies from the cookie jar. I, I hit my yeah. sister. I did this thing. I'm like, uh-oh, oh, no, oh, no. right? It's, t- <laughs> it's time. It's time to, uh, to face the music. That was a real consequence. We got rid of all the consequences um, that, yeah. that these monsters represented. And that was a real true blue consequence when you were a kid, especially mm-hmm. if you grew up in that part of the world. Yeah. Jeff, what did you think of the movie? Did you like it? I loved it. I totally loved it. I, and, and I know I'm not a, this, and by the way, don't take this as a movie review. I'm not a good person to ask. I was so happy to see Krampus in a movie that they could almost do no wrong. Like if it was a polka musical, I would have been like, yay. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I think they hit the spirit of what Krampus is. And I don't want to spoil a command in 2015. You really should have seen it by now. But um, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> you should. You should. It's funny. It's campy. It's it's horror. You know, it, and it made it made a lot of money. You know, it, it did well. But I think they hit the spirit. He's not there to just maim and destroy and kill you. He's here to help us. You, you know, does does the person who punishes the wicked, is that person evil? We need that person. Right. In our society, we need. And, and I mean, if you're if you're the wicked, you might look at them, you know, a little differently. But we need the executioner. We need the guy in the black cloak holding the, the axe ready to take off the head of the, the wicked. Someone yeah. has to do that job. Hmm. And so that's that's Krampus. And so I think the spirit of the movie, it, he sh- it, it's shown through that that, oh, he's here to help. And, and ultimately you'll warm your heart if you, if you find it just the right way. (laughs) So yeah, I loved it. I loved it. But I understand anyone who says like, as a piece of theater, it might've been crap, but whatever, (laughs) you know, I loved it. No, I think it's a pretty good movie. Uh, I, I, it held my attention without question. I, I didn't know it was a comedy slash horror going in and it does start out with a lot of humorous overtones, but then by the second and third acts, it's pretty dark. It's pretty frightening in some ways. Because here's the thing. And, and by the way, that sums up this whole holiday. How in the world can you see the light unless you go to a dark place? Hmm. It's impossible. Scrooge knew it. Scrooge had to go down to the deepest, darkest depths of his psyche and his soul and his bleak, bleak existence in order to finally get redeemed and see the light. We all have to get down into that dark place. These monsters will help us. When you're on the, when it's July and you're at the beach sipping a Mai Tai as the surf <laughs> tickles your toes, you don't see the light. It's all light. Everything's easy, right? I mean, what's easier than that? No, when you're cold, when it's dark, when you're scared, when monsters are lurking, ready to kill you, and you take stock of your life, only then can you say, man, oh, man. Time to drop these these chains, these shackles. Time to look out for each other and get right, doing right, uh, or else that I don't, you know, I don't know another way. And so that movie, I think they they hit it right. We're going to get into a really dark, scary place now. It's mm-hmm. going to go to it's going to get bad before it gets better because that's how 
that's how conflict and, and resolution work. You've got to get to a bad place. And and one of the cool things too is I was thinking about the Christmas holiday is think about how frustrating that the the shopping is. I and mean, people used to literally die at like sales on some of these stores. I don't mean to laugh, but it's mm -hmm. ridiculous that you would die to like get a, a doorbuster sale at a at a you know at a big old shopping mall or whatever. Mm. And right. so we're literally getting out there and being the worst versions of ourselves trying to get the latest toy or whatever and forgetting what this has always been about, which is like, we kind of look out for each other, all yeah. of us. Like, of course you're kids mm -hmm. and you want to give gifts. You love them and you love your loved ones, of course. But how do we, how do we show that affection um, outside of just spending and going in the hawk and sharing stories and cooking for them and, you know, quality time, peaceful time um, coming together saying we have to stay inside because it's dangerous and dark out there. The storms are coming. It's winter. Like th these are ways that, uh, that sort of conspire to bring us together where it's safe. And mm. so I love that we have to get to a dark place. We have to, and then only then can we come out on the other side better for it. A fascinating point that you make in the book is that Krampus actually influenced Dr. Seuss to write the Grinch. Tell us how you came up with that. There you go. So I was I, I was thinking about how I felt a little, you know, ripped off that my parents didn't raise me with Krampus. And I was like, man, I didn't I didn't have anything cool. I had Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, like oh, boring, you know, and I had those old, you know, animated shows, which were fun in their own right or whatever. But but then I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Krampus was in my childhood. He was in yours, too. He just went by the name The Grinch. He's covered in fur. He lives in a mountain lair over Whoville. He's, you know, angry. I know he doesn't have horns, but sometimes the the, the fur would curl into what looked like horns. And come on, right. you know, if you don't think Dr. Seuss borrowed that from Krampus, where else, you know? Um, and so, yeah, no question that was heavily influenced. And I, th I think that was just a shadow of Krampus in our childhood, animated, singing great songs. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you know, he was the one that got redeemed, right? Grinch was the one that whose heart grew three sizes that day. And, and uh, because he caught the spirit of what the holiday is supposed to mean. And, and if his heart could change, then we learned that our heart can change. He basically, you know, combined Krampus with Ebenezer Scrooge and came up with a holiday classic that's still around today. Uh, and I still love it, by the way. My, I tip my hat, but, you know, let's call it yeah. what it is. Well, it's great with Boris Karloff. Uh, it, yeah. It's been done in other forms, too, but the original cartoon, the original animated program is is probably still the king in a lot of ways. Jeff, I'm sure. curious about Krampus today. Are there cultures today that believe Krampus is real? Okay, so do we have a discussion about what reality means, which could take a while and involve chemicals, or <laughs> we don't or, have time? For so that. okay, yeah, I know, right? I, so how do we sum this up quickly? In Austria, he never went away. He's gotten softer. He's not necessarily running around scooping up kids and killing them anymore. That would make international news, but they do uh, they do carry switches of sticks, and if you attend some of those Krampus parades. They'll run along and the Krampuses will sort of hit you in the ankles and shins lightly, not, not too hard. <laughs> and the idea is to scare the bad spirit and the bad cheer out of you. That's where mm. it's sort of evolved to today. Right. Is he real? Yes. The, if, so, 
okay, for example, um, Santa Claus is real, and I'll prove it to you right now. Santa Claus, what do you see in your head? Mm-hmm. Same thing I see, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, are we, yeah. I mean, can we agree? Mm-hmm. Big red suit, white fluffy hat, the whole thing. Older mm-hmm. guy, white beard, drives a sleigh. You know where he lives. You know he's got the. You know his names of his reindeer. So yes, that is real, and um, and and our our collective psyche makes that real, real in almost every way that something can be real. Um, yeah. An analogy I like to use is the 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 paper money in your wallet, toonies and loonies, if you will, Tracy. Right. Um, but um, but but the paper or the or the coin money that we carry, we can trade that for pizza and beer. Right. And that's that's a miracle because the paper is worthless. It's it's just it's it only works because we believe in it. And if if we stop believing in it, it stops working. Ask the Confederates how their money's doing after the Civil War. Not so well, like a loaf of bread on day one could be like five dollars. And then day three, it was like, you know what? I need 20 Confederate dollars for a loaf of bread. And and then two weeks later, they could be like, you can give me a thousand Confederate dollars. Forget it. It's not it does me no good. Uh, because it doesn't work anymore. We stopped believing in it. So that belief makes it real. Pizza and beer is real. If I can trade you a $20 bill for pizza and you give me pizza and beer, that's very real. So yes, Krampus is real. All these monsters are real. Santa is real. No question. And, and, and that's, that's my debate about like, how do we define reality? I can tell you the crisp, the, the Christmas spirit, the spirit of Santa Claus, the spirit of St. Nicholas possesses me freely. I welcome it every year. Um, I, I, I be, I become that in a way. And I further this thing that's been going on for many, many centuries. Um, I, I give the gift of that magic to my child and, and the family around me mm-hmm. freely. And I welcome it. And it's a real thing that you can actually feel sometimes if you're doing it right. You know, um, and that is kind of amazing. And what's realer than that? And then yeah. December 26th comes and there's an exorcism and, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's actually not the 26th. It, it, the exorcism actually occurs when the visa bill arrives <laughs> and you're like, oh, the, the spirit's out. It's gone. <laughs> it's all gone. And then we spend all year waiting for it to come around again. Uh, that's it's very real to me. Um, you know, I spend a lot of money and time and energy on that. And, and I love it. And I don't want to live in a world without it. I think you make a great point. I believed in Santa Claus till I was 12, which is somewhat embarrassing in retrospect. But even though I finally learned from, I think my mother finally gave up the ghost and said, well, there's really not someone climbing down the chimney. But I, I believe Santa Claus still exists in everyday people, parents who provide for their children, there are people who are charitable, especially at Christmas time, and and have a a Santa Claus type nature to them. So I think, yeah, in that sense, Santa Claus is is many different people, many different good people. So I think what you say is is, is very accurate. Let's talk about some of these other characters and creatures that we should know about that I did not know about until reading your book, and I want to have you explain each one. I know I'm going to butcher some of these pronunciations, so okay. I apologize ahead of time. The first one, uh, I believe it's Caraconcolis, something like that. Uh, the Caraconcolis, yeah. Caraconcolis. So, yeah, so Caraconcolis hails from Bulgaria and the Baltic region and, and, and that, that whole part of Europe. Uh, he's a shape-shifting, subterranean, glowing red eyes, Bigfoot. 
And he comes out during the unbaptized days, which are the 12 days of Christmas, the most deadly, darkest days. He comes out at night. He's going to try to jump on your back, claw at you and ride you till dawn when he has to go back underground. Sometimes he hides over doorsteps looking for people who are sneaking out at night up to no good. Uh, But he's also a shapeshifter, which means he can look like anyone or anything. And he could try to get into your house. So, for example, if uh, you think Anne Ethel is out there on Christmas Eve with her horrible casserole knocking at your door (laughs) trying to get in, it could be Anne Ethel, but it could also be the Karakonkalis. Don't risk it, right? Just be like, Ethel, girl, that's probably you, but, (laughs) you know, because the the whole idea is that these monsters, and this is what's true really all over Europe, um, the monsters are trying to get in. And our sole job is to keep them out, right? To stay safe inside and to keep them outside so they can shapeshift. They can look like anything. And that, that is as real as real can get. Cause we know, we know we have access to the news. There are monsters out there. And sadly, they don't look like glowing red eye, hairy beasts that come from underground. That's too easy. A lot yeah. of these monsters look just like us. They look just right. like people and they do horrible things. So uh, the car I think is sort of spot on. Um, yeah, as far as something we need to be afraid of, you know, a lot of film and TV today uses shape shifting characters. So maybe there is an influence there. Of course. And aren't we all I mean, you know, our personalities shape shift depending on the company we're with uh, um, code switching uh, is is a popular term. But I get it. We all code switch when you're around your, your, your people at the bar. You might swear a lot and bah, whatever. Let your hair down. When you're at work, you might have a very, you know, formal veneer where you, oh, yes, welcome mm-hmm. and good day. And I am never like this any other time, you know. And so we all we all sort of have different uh, we, we all shape shift to get through our lives. And um, finding our real authentic selves is is. Um, a rare treat for some of us, but a worthy pursuit. <laughs> Another popular creature is the Belschnickel. The Belschnickel. He's coming back too. So, okay, Krampus, number one fame, if we're talking about like Twitter followers, right? So sure, you know, um, <laughs> he's he's the most famous, but Belschnickel, I'm telling you, is on his heels because he's showing up in pop culture references too. So if if bringing Krampus into your family tradition seems a little harsh with the whole killing children thing, uh, Belschnickel is like Krampus light. He, it means Nicholas and furs and it, each community would have one. He'd be covered in a patchwork of furs. He'd have soot on his face, carries a switch of sticks. He comes alone. He doesn't come with St. Nicholas and mm. he could show up weeks before Christmas. And my, and, and the community it could be my turn to be Belschnickel this year. And I would knock on your door, Bruce. And I would say, are there any naughty children here? And you might say like, well, this one over here has been great all year, but little Johnny there, not so much. <laughs> And Bruce, I would take your child, little Johnny, out back, and I would tie him to a tree, and I would just beat his ass with sticks over and over again. He would cry and scream. And the whole idea is that he can sort of get right, correct his behavior, and get some gifts in time for Christmas. And next year could be your turn to be Belschnickel and come to my house and beat my children. And it's kind of beautiful, right? The the circle goes round. Oh, my goodness. Oh, interesting. I never heard it that way. <laughs> but he's coming back. So if you've ever seen NBC's The Office... Uh, there was a Christmas episode, uh, Dwight Christmas, where Dwight Schrute played Belschnickel. He was covered in fur. He had the sticks, the whole thing. And then last year, was it year? no, two years ago, um, Netflix put out Christmas Chronicles 2 with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell, real life husband and wife playing mm-hmm. Santa and Mrs. Claus. The antagonist, the bad guy in the movie was this uh, young person with a black leather jacket, long black hair. And the character's name was Belschnickel. Um, which the movie deviates in that he was the enemy, 
because in real life they're not enemies at all but in uh in the movie he was the enemy so anyway he's been on the office he's been in a netflix blockbuster movie uh you know watch out behind you he could be at your house next really you might have said this but i didn't pick it up where did that what culture did that come from also germany and austria germany yeah the germans knew a thing or two about (laughs) about monsters yeah all right, the next one is is a female character, either Gryla or Grilla. Grilla. Yeah, Grilla, Grilla. from Iceland. Oh, Grilla may be the worst of all of them because wow. she is a, a mountain ogress. She lives up in the mountains. She's got 13 tails. She runs a whole dysfunctional family of, of monsters. And unlike Krampus and Belschnickel, who seek out naughty kids, Grilla does not discriminate naughty good makes no difference right grilla comes down around the winter solstice and collects her rent and any kid out there that's that's <laughs> lost in the woods or whatever is going to get snatched up brought back to her lair caught up into a stew and eaten <laughs> and and this is this is stuff that parents warn their kids about iceland is such an interesting country because when the europeans first settled there there were no people it was it was literally covered by an ice sheet you know centuries before mm-hmm. the ice receded and then all that was left on the island were trolls and imps and fairies and magical monsters. And as Europeans settled there, uh, things started to change. The, the, the towns and villages grew and all the monsters had to go back up into the mountains. But at the solstice, they'd come down. They'd come down and kind of collect their due. And so uh, keep in mind, so in Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland, in, in, at the winter solstice, there's about four hours of sunlight. Um, the sun, you know, rises and sets. If you go further north, it's less. If you go to the very northern tip of Iceland, they're just about at the Arctic Circle. There's no sunrise at all. Mm. So that's the time where you keep your children and your family safe inside because Grilla is coming. And she's such a pop culture figure in Iceland now that when you land at the airport, you know how we have mall Santas where you can take pictures? Right. There'll be this giant cauldron with this this like big hag of a woman behind with like stirring it. And you can get in the pot and take pictures with the Grilla, which is amazing. Uh, I, I love that. And there's other places around the country you can do that too. So, so Grilla comes down, um, to collect and you just got to keep your kids safe and think about it, you know, go back again, a hundred years or so. Mm -hmm. And if, if your kids are lost in the woods, in the dark and the cold, uh, and they die from exposure or the Grilla gets them and eats them, is there a difference, right? The end result is the same. So if this monster keeps your children scared and safe inside, this monster helps and it's a story worth telling and retelling. Right. Oh, that is a very cool story. <laughs> she, she's, I love that she's like, because with Krampus, you're like, oh, you've been naughty. You could be in trouble. Like you could use the threat, but with Greeley, you're like, hey, good luck. <laughs> I'm going over and over in my head. What stories can I tell my children? <laughs> yeah, all of them. Let them worry. Exactly. You know, Grilla seems like a perfect subject for Hollywood. I'm, I'm thinking a few years ago, that movie, I can't remember the exact title. It was it was a Hansel and Gretel horror movie with Jeremy Renner. And oh, I would think yeah. a movie in that kind of style would be perfect for a character like Grilla. And where did Hansel and Gretel come from? Where were the Brothers Grimm from? Germany. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. That, and, and if you read those old original Grimm fairy tales, which you can get any any of the bookstore, like the old ones, the originals, mm-hmm. they were brutal, you know, before Disney got their hands on them. Yeah. Um, you know, Cinderella, 
Like in the in the original story, the stepsisters were trying to get their feet into the glass slipper. Their feet were so big. So one stepsister cut her toes off, filled it with blood, trying to wedge her foot into that glass slipper. The other one cut the heel off of her own foot. Mm. Same thing. Like Disney seemed to miss that part, right? When you watch the movie, they just didn't quite happen. So I, I and there, there's a there's a book I read years ago by um, uh, Dr. Uh, Bruno Bettelheim. It was called The Power of Enchantment. And his whole point was he was a child psychologist about how children's stories and fairy tales used to be pretty rough mm-hmm. and that kids could handle it, that that the obvious line between good and evil in those old stories was sort of helpful and how we've we've really overplayed the good and really toned down the evil in more modern children's stories, probably to the detriment of our kids. So, for example, Jack and the Beanstalk is such an important right. story. Because the story is about, I mean, it's so obvious, right? Who's the giant? We are, the parents. The parents are the giants. And the kid is not stronger. No kid is going to be as strong as an adult ever. You will never beat an adult in a fist fight, but Mm -hmm. you can be smarter. And we want our kids to outsmart us. We want to know that if you're out there among monsters and giants, that you're not going to beat them with strength, but maybe you can outsmart them and survive because that's what it's all about. Um, And so anyway, I, I think that, that there used to be more of an understanding of just how dangerous the world can be. Mm-hmm. And in the interest of protecting our kids, we sort of wash down all these stories, but I think they're coming back. Yeah. And, and, you know, Krampus is one example and Grilla and, and yeah. different cultures, you know, we're bringing them back. Yeah. Do you think, do you think the younger generation that's coming up is helping to bring that stuff back? Like, is it the young kid? Well, not kids, but the younger generation, younger than me, trying to bring these stories. <laughs> I, I so I this is this will sound a little woo woo. I really believe <laughs> in the collective consciousness. I believe that we we ebb and flow through through different moods and feelings and so on, and that it, it takes a it takes all of us. Right? right, no one person could bring this stuff back. Um, I think of my own daughter. She loves horror movies, but mm-hmm. you know, look where she grew up. Um, you know, so I can't, she's not a a really a good, uh, good guide for that. But, uh, but I think they have more of an understanding of just how scary and dangerous the world can be. Um, I mean, think about it. Like they do active school shooting drills in my daughter's school Mm -hmm. because school shootings are a thing. They weren't a thing when we were kids, no school got shot up. Um, but now they're a thing, a thing that you actually have to practice for. So they are growing up in a world that is um, more obviously scary yeah. than I think when we grew up. We just had to worry about white vans. <laughs> kids. Yes. And, 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 and now they're like white vans. Oh, that would be easy. Right. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the right. least of my concerns. So. Uh, so, yeah, we live in a, a different time when people are, are getting you know, famous for acts of monstrosity. Jeff, one other creature to talk about the Yule Cat. <laughs> yeah, the Yule Cat's great. Another from Iceland. Um, the, the Yule Cat comes down on Christmas Day and you need to lay out your brand new clothes that you got for, for working hard all year <laughs> and lay them out on Christmas Day. Show that you have new clothes. Uh, otherwise, the Yule Cat is going to kill you and eat you. <laughs> it's that important. I, I, I sort of think there's a uh, the, the you know, the capitalist in me thinks maybe there's a economic reason for this. You know, hey, you got to buy new clothes. You got to, you know, pump up the economy here a little bit. If we're all buying new clothes, that helps everybody. There's money for Christmas. 
But part of it too is that you're showing you're not lazy. You're showing you're productive and you're working hard and that you can afford these new clothes. Um, and it, it's, it's, um, and it's a sign like everybody wears the new clothes on Christmas and you walk around and everybody sees it. And if you're not in your new clothes, you're going to stick out and nobody ironically wants to stick out, right? You want to blend. And I, that, that story, uh, gets sort of told and retold as a way to, um, to remind us that, you know, you make sure that you've got enough left over to, to spend when it's uh, Christmas time. Oh, very cool. I've, I was fascinated about the Yule cat. Um, I'm a, I'm a cat person, so that so one really stuck out. <laughs> what one more comment on the Yule Cat? Uh, that same movie, Christmas Chronicles Two, with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell, mm -hmm. the uh, the Belschnickel was the antagonist, and with him was a giant cat called the Yule Cat. Just wow. saying, just saying, you're gonna this stuff is creeping into popular culture again. So not just in Iceland, now also on Netflix. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you made a brief mention of this earlier, but I. I want to explore this. this. This really will be one of our final topics. One of the interesting customs of Christmas in the not so distant past was the sending of greetings cards, but they were nothing like the cards of today. They had images of Santa Claus type figures wielding large knives or axes. They had creepy clowns, devilish characters. Where did all of that come from? So, so, so greeting cards, they got, you know, as printing presses and so on got, got bigger and bigger, mm -hmm. um, Krampus cards. And there's, there's so many out there, by the way, you if, just do a Google image search, Krampus postcard. And in the latter half of the 1800s, the early 1900s, there are just dozens and dozens of, uh, designs that survive of, um, you know, of, of this, this wonderful thing. So you would, you would send these as greeting cards. Instead of like happy, merry, lovey Christmas, right? It was, it was reflecting the times. Like this is the time to be scared. So let me send you a time, you know, something reflecting that. Our Christmas cards got soft the same time we pushed the monsters away. Then it went from like sending Krampus cards to happy, merry, lovey, spending money Christmas cards. And, hmm. um, and now I, I mean, I, I do, I have bought Krampus greeting cards in previous years off of, you know, websites. Although now I think you can even get them on Amazon. Um, but I sent, I send them to friends because, and they were like, I love this. I couldn't love this anymore. You know, I get all <laughs> these like sappy, sweet, you know, Christmas tree cards and then there's yours. And, and, and this is where I truly believe in like supply demand and, and the basics of economics. If people want those cards, someone out there will print them. And if people keep buying them, they'll say, wow, we printed this many of these cards and we ran out next year. Let's print more. Right. It's just how it works. We vote with our wallets. And so that was what the times called for was these like how how crazy can we make these cards? And then the taste changed. Um, and now God knows where we're at. <laughs> but but I, I do I do suspect because I bought those cards and I know they're still out there um, that I think they might be coming back. Tracy, will you send me one of those, please? I think that's a cool idea. <laughs> I was just going to say, I need to have one of those. <laughs> you, can. you can. You can make your own. That's great. That's great. I will get creative. <laughs> Jeff, before we let you go, what is the best place for people to buy the book? Do you prefer Amazon or your website? Uh, uh, tell us about that. As so, well. so remember when I said how like things are coming back and people vote with their wallet and demand and all that other stuff? So my book is selling out. Amazon, the, the publisher's warehouse is gone. It's empty. Amazon has sold out as of the other day. Wow. Uh, Bookshop.org has sold out. 
Barnes and Noble still has a few left online and Books a Million still has a few left online. Of course, the audiobook won't run out. That's out there. And I narrated that. If you can get that wherever you get audiobooks, the Kindle version won't run out. But the print hardcover is just about out of stock everywhere, um, which is as problems go uh, is is good if you're the author. Sure. Um, but yeah, the first edition, first printing has been um, uh, received well better than any of us have anticipated. And so, um, yeah, so, which is great, but it also means that it's sort of rare. So if you see one and it's something you want, this isn't like a hard sell. It's go check Amazon. If you don't believe me, it's, it's gone. Um, so yeah, so wherever you see it or independent booksellers too, um, can get it. Okay. So that's, and your that's website? Where ordinarily I'd stay anywhere, but yeah, not anymore. <laughs> yeah. My website's my name, jeffbelanger.com. And, um, that's where I've got links to everything. Uh, I'm on a story tour right now. So I, um, many nights this month, I'm, I'm telling these live Christmas stories in front of audiences. It's like a one man show. It's been super great. Um, I've been doing that for years and, um, you know, doing other media appearances and things like that. All my other books, there's links there to, to places where you can buy them. Those are in stock on Amazon, but not this one. This one's gone. Um, but yeah, so, so yeah, no, I, I love what I do. I'm just, I'm very blessed that I get to do this as a full-time job between, you know, working on the show ghost adventures for the last 15 years and, and writing books and podcasting and everything else. Like I'm just so lucky that this is my full-time job. And so I deeply appreciate being part of the paranormal community um, which is, you know, I've, all my weird friends are there. And, um, also it's, uh, it's been a great community to be part of, uh, for so long, just cause I, I love the camaraderie and that we're all into weird stuff and we're all searching for answers. Uh, again, Jeff Belanger, author of 16 books, his latest, the fright before Christmas, surviving Krampus and other Yuletide monsters. Uh, I'm enjoying it immensely. I'm probably about halfway, two thirds of the way through it. It's a lot of fun and certainly perfect for this time of year. Jeff, this has been great. Very entertaining, very enlightening. Thank you for joining us on the Ghostly Gallery. Thanks so much. Good talking with you both. Our guest, Jeff Belanger, we thank him. We thank Tracy also for her contributions as well. Tracy, appreciate it. We want to thank all of the listeners joining us here on the program, joining us in this Museum of the Macabre, And we hope you'll join us next time right here in the Ghostly Gallery.